Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. We are going to do a Bible study first, and then we've got a baby dedication, and then we'll do some baptisms. You guys ready for this? That's, that's where we're headed. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 95. Psalm 95, this is our Thrive Teaching Series, Habits of Grace. We're going to talk about worship this weekend. Oprah Winfrey. Brad Pitt and C.S. Lewis all struggled with God's self-promotion. Oprah walked away from Orthodox Christianity when she was about 27 because of the biblical teaching that God is jealous. He demands that he and no one else get our highest allegiance and affection. It didn't sound loving to her. Brad Pitt turned away from his boyhood faith He says, because God says, you have to say that I'm the best. It seemed to be about ego. C.S. Lewis, before he became a Christian, complained that God's demand to be praised, to be praised, sounded like a vain woman who wants compliments. Take a look at your sermon notes, part of the intro there. Everyone is hardwired to worship. Every one of us are hardwired to worship. It is what we do. It is who we are. We are worshipers. The world is not divided up into people who worship and people who don't worship. The world is divided up into people who worship created things and those who worship the Creator. That's the major distinction that the Bible makes. And that's fundamentally what's wrong with us is our tendency by by nature and by choice is that we find greater pleasure in the gifts of God than what we find in God. That's what we do by nature and by choice. It's part of our sinful nature. We exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve created things more than the Creator, Romans 1.25. All of us tend to do that, and all of us struggle with that, and that's fundamentally what's wrong with us and what's wrong with our world today. And you were created by God, for God, to give glory to God. Now listen to me. And God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And when we are most satisfied in him, we are crucified to this world. In other words, the world doesn't have a hold on us as much as it did before. And uh, God is the only being for whom self-promotion is the most loving act Why is that? Because nothing will fortify your faith, liberate your life, satisfy your soul like giving God your heart's deepest loyalties and affections, worshiping him. That's what we're going to talk about here this morning, talking about worship. Before we do that, before we look at this text, Psalm 95, and unpack these notes, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we are delighted to be here this morning. We love your presence You are eternal, you're ever-present, you're perfect in love, infinite in knowledge and wisdom, 
absolute in power, spotless in your purity, completely just and righteous and breathtakingly beautiful in all your glory. You are all this and much more, yet our worship of you falls so short of who you are and what you've done for us. Teach us what worship is, what it does, and how to do it. May you, our immeasurably great and infinitely infinitely good God of the universe, make your presence and love so real to our hearts that our joy would be uncontainable. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful and beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Take a look at this. Psalm 95 is the classic text in the Bible about worship. It's the venite, because in Latin, the first word of this psalm is venite, o, o come, o come. And so through the centuries, the Christian church has looked to this psalm more than any other place in the Bible to teach us about worship. So let me read through this. I'll make some brief comments as we work through it. But he says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is great and a great king above all gods. And he's going to describe a little bit more of his greatness through creation. And he says, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Stop there just for a minute. What is he talking about here? Why do mountains and oceans move us so deeply? That's what he's talking about. And it's because they are a great work of art, nonverbal communication that this world is not an accident, but the meaningful work of an artist's hands. And so he's looking at the greatness of God through creation. Now, what's fascinating about this psalm is that he moves from the greatness of God now to the goodness of God. You gotta have both of those together. We tend to swing to one extreme or the other. The greatness of God will rid you of, of your pride. It humbles you, but the goodness of God will, will get rid of your fear. So it gives you this humble confidence when you understand that God is not just powerful, but he's personal. He's not just transcendent, but he's imminent. He's not just great, but he's also good. It's important to maintain that balance. And so he moves from, from his greatness now to his goodness. He says, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. So he's kind of speaking metaphorically of, of a shepherd with his sheep. A shepherd with his sheep, he takes care of his sheep. He provides for his sheep. Psalm 23 comes to mind. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. What is he talking about here? It should have only taken the Israelites about 14 days to go from Egypt to the promised land, and because of their unbelief, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. 
when they could have entered into the promised land, a land of milk and honey. So he's giving us a picture of the kind of life that God invites us to and welcomes us to. But our unbelief will keep us out of that. And so he says, they are a people who, who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So here we go. First of all, what it is, talk, let's define worship. It's on your notes there. The essence of worship is making God your greatest treasure and deepest pleasure. And in, and in fact, there's no deeper pleasure in life when God is your greatest treasure. When you make him your greatest treasure, that's where you're going to find the deepest pleasure in life. Now, if you doubt that, it's because you've never tasted of that. You've never experienced that. But the Bible makes that very clear. In fact, let me add to that definition. It is giving ultimate worth and value to God in such a way that it engages and enthralls your whole person, every, bar, every part of you. So he's your greatest treasure, deepest pleasure, and in essence, it's giving him ultimate worth and value in such a way that it, it engages and enthralls your whole person, mind, emotion, will. Mind, emotion, and actions are all woven together in worship. Why is that important? Because Matthew 15, 8, and 9, Jesus said to the Pharisees, these people, they worship me with their lips, but their what? Their hearts are far from me. And so he was just saying, yeah, you can robotically kind of come to church, check the church box, go through the motions, and never really have an encounter with God, and never give your heart's deepest loyalties and affections to God just becomes a routine, a ritual, a religious activity, as opposed to truly a relationship with God, an encounter with the living God. And uh, that's what he's talking about there. So, so here's what this would look like. If you affirm biblical doctrines of God mentally without ever experiencing in your inner being emotionally a ravishing sense of the beauty and the glory of God, it's not worship. On the other hand, if you go to a service and have an emotional experience, but it doesn't change you fundamentally in how you live your life, your character over time, it's not worship. So worship should involve, here's your next, uh, here we go with the fill in the blanks. First of all, focusing my attention on God. That's the mind. So it's fascinating as you read through the psalm, you're going to see all three of these in this text Mind, emotion, will, it involves all of those. It's an engaging and enthralling ourselves with God and who God is and what he's done for us. And so what he's doing here, he's, he is taking inventory, he's enumerating and reflecting upon the excellencies of God until there's an explosion in his heart, which I don't think we do a very good job with that. At least I don't, maybe you don't either. But it's important to do that. Oftentimes we wonder why our hearts are so cold towards God when he's teaching us how to... How to how to turn up the heat on our hearts for God, right here. Taking inventory, enumerating, reflecting upon the excellencies of God until there's this explosion in his heart. Verses one, three, and six, he uses the, the word, the title, the name, it's really God's personal name. Anytime in the Old Testament you read and it uses the, the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's God's personal name. So he's, so he's talking about this personal relationship with the creator, knowing him personally, Yahweh. And then in verse one, he says, the rock of our salvation. 
Verse three, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Verse four, in his hand are the depths of the earth. I mean, he's just, he's thinking, he's reflecting and looking at creation. The heights of the mountains are, are his also. Verse five, the sea is his, for he made it and his hand formed the dry land. Verse six, our maker Verse seven, he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. So his greatness and then to his goodness. So here's, here's what he's teaching us, focusing my attention on God, mine. We must believe our way into feelings, not feel our way into beliefs. We tend to want to feel our way into beliefs. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like going to church. I don't, wait, 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 wait. You don't do it because of your feelings. You do it because it's a value to you. And it's important to you. And as you begin to, as he's doing here, taking inventory, enumerating, reflecting upon the excellencies of God, you believe your way into feeling, not feel your way into believing. And, and that's, that's how it should work in our lives. See, faith is the art of holding on to the things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. That's a C.S. Lewis. How many would agree with me that your moods are going to be like a roller coaster? Yeah. So sometimes you're going to feel like God's close. Sometimes you're not going to feel like he's, he's nowhere to be found. But you continue to do those things that are most important to you, that, that are valuable to you. So it's, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. That's what he's doing here. And then that moves to expressing my affection to God. So as it begins to warm my heart, as I begin to reflect on all of who God is, I begin to express my affection to God. That's emotion. Look at verses one and two. He says, let us make a joyful noise. A joyful noise. Some of you are really good at that. I've, I've heard you sing. You make a joyful noise. Just keep doing it. Keep doing it. And that's it. It's, it's joyful. Let us make a joyful noise. Verse two, come into his presence with what? Thanksgiving. Verse eight, do not harden your hearts. Verse 10, they are a people who go astray in their heart. What is he talking about here? What does it mean to harden your heart? Here's what it means. It means to, it can start by just questioning God's existence or maybe you don't question God's existence, you know he exists, but then you begin to question his goodness. There's almost this hardening of your heart. And what happens is that in that unbelief, as you begin to question his goodness, I don't think that he has my best interest at heart. That's what we see with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. That's the reason why they begin to turn their back on God and begin to choose other things over and above God. I mean, that's what we do. We tend to find greater pleasure in the gifts of God as opposed to, to God. And it's because of doubting his goodness. In doubting his goodness, then in pride, we think we're smarter than God. And then in idolatry, obviously, because we're worshipers by nature, we have to replace God with some, some other God, little g, God. And that's a hardening of your heart. But it typically starts either by questioning his existence or you begin to question his goodness. He doesn't have my best interest at heart. I think I can actually find greater satisfaction away from God doing my own thing. Nothing could be further from the truth. And, uh, and that's what that hardening of your heart that begins to take place. But, but there's also more to that. As you begin to express your affection to God and you know that he has your best interest at heart, that he's perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, and unlimited in his power, and he's working in your life, and you begin to interact with him, 
The person who spends time with God radiates his glory in a manner that is always warm and welcoming, never cold and condemning. It's gonna make a difference in your life. I mean, when you're expressing your affection to him and you have his love on your heart, you're having an experience of his love. You just don't know his love here. You're experiencing it deep within your heart. Believe me, you're gonna radiate his glory in a way that it's very warm and welcoming to those around you. It's not gonna be cold and condemning. In fact, when I'm cold and condemning, I realize I need to spend some time with him. I need to get close to him. And so there's that expressing my affection to God. And then, and then obviously it's gonna move into your, your will, your actions, using my actions for God. Verses one and two. Let us make a joyful noise Verse one, let us sing. Verse six, let us bow down, kneel before the Lord. And then I added in the fuller context of Psalms, we've also got, we're talking body language here. But Psalm 47, one, clapping. Psalm 30, 11, dancing. Psalm 28, two, lifting up our hands, raising our hands. Why do, you know, oftentimes people will come in here or maybe they might ask, well, why are those people raising their hands? Do they have a question or something? What's... What's going on here? Somebody got a gun to their back? You know, so it's kind of, sometimes it, can, it looks a little awkward, but the Bible says no. Well, that's a very normal expression of our love for God. Lifting up hands, lifting up our head, that's Psalm 3.3. 3. Psalm 96.8, offerings. Psalm 110.2, serving the Lord with gladness. So let me give you another definition for worship. So worship is, a, is to see what God is worth, that's our attention, and to give to God what he's worth, that's our affection and actions. Worship is not something that can be coerced or forced or manipulated, but it is the natural response of seeing God's worth and giving to God what he's worth. So worship rises or falls with your concept of God. If you have a small concept of God, you're not gonna... Have big worship. So what do you got to do? You got to get back to your concept of God. You've got to go back to the beginning here with your thoughts, focusing my attention on God, taking inventory, enumerating, reflecting upon the excellencies of God, and then it begins to stir this affection for God, and before long you're expressing your love, love to God. Worship rises or falls with our concept of God. Probably the purest form of worship I've ever seen was at an Arizona Cardinal game, University of Phoenix Stadium. I mean, I've seen certainly pure forms of worship here, but that, that was pretty pure, pretty pure form, uh, form of worship. I mean, uh, someone had given us tickets and we were sitting pretty close down towards the field. It was so crazy loud, I had to put earplugs in. How many have ever been to one of the games? And Pretty loud, isn't it? Oh my goodness, I put earplugs in because it was so loud. I mean, it didn't keep me from joining in, though, and there was clapping, there was dancing, there was lifting up of hands. It's like people are like, hey, whoa, celebrating, dancing, whoa. I mean, it's just, they were getting crazy. They were giving offerings, 50 bucks for nachos and soda, not in, <laughs> nachos and soda, not including uh, seat prices. And then by the end of the game, this is what was fascinating, by the end of the game, I mean, we were sitting around total strangers. By the end of the game, if your team is winning, I mean, you're hugging and high-fiving complete strangers sitting around you. 
It's like, hey, we're just one family. Just everybody's just, it's weird. It's kind of crazy. But it was fun. And that was for a football game. Let me emphasize that. A crazy football game. I, I love football. I enjoy watching football. And I could get a little crazy out there. But I've yet to ever come across a football game that ever moved me, stirred me, like knowing Christ and, and experiencing him and experiencing his presence in my life. I mean, I, yeah, praise God, huh? I mean, and I've gone to a lot of great games. In fact, I, I hope, I hope tonight on Sunday night football, is it Sunday night football? Are we going to beat Seattle? Okay, just wondering. You guys are excited about that. Yeah, hopefully, I, the, the game that I went to is that Seattle, Seattle put a, a pretty good whipping on us. It was pretty harsh, pretty harsh to watch. But, uh, but I mean, there's, there's, they can be exciting, and yet not near as exciting, exhilarating, enthusiastic as, as our relationship with God, even more so. Even more so. And... Uh, and if, if that is true for something as temporal as football, how much more true should that be in our relationship with God? I was thinking about, I've been studying through First and Second Samuel, and uh, it just stood out to me that, that when they brought the ark back to Jerusalem, it says in Second Samuel 6, 14, and David danced before the Lord with all of his might. He was excited about the presence of God. This is the king of that nation, and he just gets wild and crazy. And Michael, his wife, despised him, and so guess how he, he responded? I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. That's verse 22 of chapter six of Second Samuel. He says, I don't care what you say. When you have the approval of the king of the universe, you don't care so much about the approval or disapproval of others. You're just going to get wild and crazy for God. I mean, you're just going to go, wow. You're going to be excited. So now, the reason why I said that is because I've seen some of you at football games, and you get pretty crazy, okay? And then I've also seen you here, and you're as stiff as an ironing board. <laughs> I love you, Lord. I give you my heart. <laughs> and I'm looking at you like, come on. I'm not, I, you know, I'm not doubting maybe you're really praising him in your heart, but at least tell your face that you are <laughs> and your body language. I mean, it just seems to me those songs were rocking this morning. I mean, that was some good music. This band, they do a great job. I love it, man. I don't know how you can't just get into it, just go, woo! I mean, it's just like, wow, God, you are great. I, I don't know why you wouldn't. And like David, I'm going to dance before the Lord, and I don't care what anybody thinks or says. And oftentimes what inhibits us is I think it's either unbelief, we don't actually believe that we're meeting with God, or it's pride and or fear. And we're more concerned about what people say about us than what, what, what God thinks about us. And we're not living in the reality of his approval of us. Because, man, when you live in the reality of his, his approval, it's like, oh my goodness, you don't, you don't give a rip about really what other people think or say for the most part. I mean, you, you do in, in some regards, but not, not that much. They don't, it doesn't carry as much glory or weight in your life. He, 
that you would express your love and affection to him. And so that's kind of that's that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make a difference. When you begin to see his beauty and glory, you begin to give to God what he is worth with your affections and your actions. So what it does, let's talk about that real quick, what it does. Why should we worship? Because we are already giving ultimate value to something. You're already giving ultimate value and worth to something. Everybody here, everybody out there. By the way, you can't live unless you're doing that. There's some kind of meaning in your life. Everybody's living for something. Something gets you out of bed in the morning. Like I said, the whole world can be divided up into two groups of people. It's either going to be God or it's going to be something in creation. It's either going to be the creator or, the, or, or creation. And so why should we worship God? It's because we're already giving ultimate value to something. The process of true worship is to recognize where your worship already is and then transfer your ultimate value to God. Every single person has put their faith, hope, and love in something that they say, if I have that, then, then I'm okay. My life has meaning. My life has purpose. I have hope in my life. Everyone lives for something. Everyone lives for something. Even atheists are living for something. There's something that's, that's near and dear to their, their hearts. It's important to them. It's what moves them. It drives them. It dominates their thoughts. It stirs their emotions and moves them to actions. Here's what Rebecca Pippert says. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who lives for acceptance by other people is controlled by the people he or she seeks to please. One thing is certain, we do not control ourselves, we're controlled by the Lord of our lives. So this is what will heal you. Our ultimate problem is that is what we worship, and we tend to worship our way into trouble. The only way you can get yourself out of trouble is to worship your way out. Look at these verses once again, going back to our text, verse 3. That's why he says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, little g gods. So the tendency in our life is to take good things and turn them into ultimate things. Good things become God things in our life as opposed to looking to God. And so we try to get out of our marriage, out of our job, out of our kids, what we should be getting out of God, and then it, it does damage to those things in our life. What he's saying here, so for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. He's saying that even the most successful careers and families and lives can't give you the acceptance, significance, and security that only God can give you. And then he goes on in verse 6, let us kneel before the Lord our maker. He's, he's talking about here giving ultimate worth and value to God in such a way that it engages and enthralls your whole person. Verse seven, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, in other words, he wants to communicate with us. He wants to speak to us. So here's some things to think about. This is what worship does. It provides an identity in life that is indestructible. It provides an identity in life that is indestructible. Everyone is building their identity on something. When I'm talking about identity, I'm talking about, there's, there's many definitions for identity, but one is, is your ultimate meaning in life. So if your identity, your ultimate meaning in life is in created things rather than the creator, it will inevitably drive you, disappoint you, and eventually devastate you. If God is your ultimate meaning or joy, then you can risk having lesser joys or lesser meanings be threatened, blocked, or lost without inordinate anxiety, anger, or depression. Lesser joys meaning your job or health or marriage or your kids. You can have those threatened without your 
emotional, negative emotional meter pegging, uh, inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression as a result of those being threatened, blocked, or lost. I, I went on a call a number of years ago on the fire department. Never forget this call. The guy had uh, attempted suicide unsuccessfully, and he had taken a razor blade to his throat and cut across his throat. When we got there, he was laying on his bed in his bedroom. Most of his air exchange was through the trachea. He did it basically traked himself. And so on his trachea, it was just this gaping wound right here, and he was breathing. Most of his air exchange was from his neck here, just kind of covered with blood, but didn't hit main, main vessels here in his neck, but still just a lot of massive blood and, and laying there. And so uh, we took him in. I, we found out a little bit what was going on, and apparently his wife began to tell us that he had had a job for close to 20 years getting ready for retirement, and they, they fired him or laid him off before retirement. So he thought, okay, well, I can, I can find another job. And so he went out to look for another job unsuccessfully. And because he had all of his eggs in that one basket called job, career, and that was lost, so goes his identity, so goes his life. No meaning, no purpose in life, it was gone. And uh, so that, that depression obviously led him to suicide. My life's over. What do I have to live for? The gospel gives us an identity that is indestructible, that it transcends the temporal, that even when all the things in the, in the temporal, whether it be, you know, your job or health or marriage or your kids are, are going to hell in a handbasket or whatever is happening, you can stand strong because it gives you that kind of an identity because that's what he says when he's talking about here, for he is our God, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even when my marriage is on the rocks, even when my kids are going south, even when I lose my job, there's a contentment that can be found in Christ Then it's, that's inexplicable. When everything else is falling and failing around us, we have a contentment in Christ. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Yeah, you're going to have bad things happen to you. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. In fact, he goes on in verse 11, and he describes that and says that, um, that I am the good shepherd, and I laid down my life for my sheep so that we can experience life in him. So it provides an identity in life that is indestructible. Number two, it satisfies the deepest longing of your soul. Verse 2, let us come into his presence. This is, this is really, I believe, the best thing about the Christian life. It's his presence in our life. Psalm 1611, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I love his presence. I love to worship. I love spending time with God. I love reading his word. Oh, my goodness. There's a satisfaction. There's a, it's, I don't even know how to put it into words at times having an encounter with the living God, knowing him. It satisfies the deepest longing of our souls. To glorify means to enjoy. So in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And there's no greater pleasure than to enjoy him. And here's what I found in worship, that in worship you'll find yourself more satisfied with God and less satisfied with things of less importance. They don't have that hold on you as much anymore. And then number three, it protects your heart from being hijacked by lesser loves. Verse eight, don't harden your hearts 
Once again, this is unbelief about God's existence or goodness. Matthew 22, 34 through 40, it says, Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Psalm 51, 12. David, it's, it's really quite interesting. This is his repentant psalm. Though he was a man after God's own heart, he blew it big time, committed adultery, murder, betrayed his whole nation and people. God called him out on it. He repented. And in that repentance, he says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And it wasn't that he sinned and lost the joy of his salvation. He lost the joy of his salvation, therefore he sinned. Because sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. Holiness is being so satisfied with God that sin loses its appeal. It's finding such satisfaction in him that trials don't overwhelm us and temptations don't overtake us. So that's what we have in him. That's why worship, that's what worship does, is there's this savoring and being satisfied in, in all of who God is. And it protects our hearts from being hijacked by lesser loves. And then number four, it recalibrates your values, priorities, and practices. There are people who go astray in their heart. They will not enter my rest. So our tendency is to is to chase after the things in creation and make more of those things than we do of the creator and it creates an unrest in our lives, especially when those things are being threatened, blocked, or lost and we've built our meaning on those things. But the only place of rest is found in him. Our hearts are forever restless until we find our rest in him. St. Augustine said that in his book, Confessions, in his memoirs. And so... Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. I hear people say all the time, well, hey, you know what? God's really valuable to me. He's really important to me. Bible study, prayer, small groups, coming to church. And yet if I were to look at their lives, their lives would say something quite contrary. Here's what I have found in my life. The things I value, I prioritize. The things I prioritize, I practice. So all you need to do is look at your practices and it'll it'll show you what's a priority to you and it'll also show you what's valuable to you. If you're not reading your Bible, praying, and attending church as regularly as you should, which, by the way, you probably should be here more often than you're not here. I'm serious. We have a whole fringe of people that they just show up once in a while here. And I, I kind of wonder, is, that, is, is God really a value in your life? I understand that life gets busy, but, but is it really a value in your life? You're showing to me that maybe it isn't a value. You're showing by your actions that maybe really he isn't a value. And so what you need to do is get back to the place to where he is a value and you are worshiping him and you're giving him that first place in your life because it will change your priorities and practices, believe me. It really will and that's what worship does. It recalibrates us. And then let me read something here. This is, uh, from, uh, this is actually from uh, Tim Keller's book, Prayer, and he's kind of uh, giving us a commentary of a, of a quote by C.S. Lewis, and I've read the quote by C.S. Lewis. Um, it's been a while since I've read it, but it's, it's really a great quote, but I think that he does a great job at kind of dissecting. It's called, called the, the Health of Praise. I want you to just track with me, and then we'll, we'll, we'll knock out the rest of this pretty quickly here, but this is what he says. One of the most, uh, by the way, praise is a part of our worship. It's, it's a way that we express our, our worship to God. Worship is the bigger, the bigger part of this, and praise is an aspect of, of worship. And so one of the most in, uh, influential modern essays on praising God is a word about praising in C.S. Lewis's book, Reflections on the Psalms. Lewis begins recounting a problem he had with many of the Psalms, namely that God so often calls people to praise him. 
We despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. Lewis responded, it almost seemed as if God were saying, what I want most is to be told that I am good and great. As time went on, Lewis began to reflect on why we praise anything. So he's just talking about praising things in general. And what do we mean, for example, when we say that a picture, a piece of music, or a book is admirable? We mean that people ought to admire those things, and if they do not, they will lose out and miss something wonderful. This began to help Lewis understand the calls to praise God. If God is the great object of admiration behind all other beauties and magnificence, then to praise and admire him would be simply to awake, to have entered the real world, while not doing so would be to become far more profoundly crippled than those who are blind, deaf, and bedridden. That was not all he discovered. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. He had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless shyness or fear of boring others is deliberately brought, brought into check. When you find anything greater enthralling, you have an almost visceral, instinctive need to praise it to others and get others to recognize it. Listen to this. You say to your friend, I can't wait for you to read it. You'll absolutely love it. Isn't it great? Isn't it wonderful? Why, when we have had our imaginations captured by something, do we unavoidably need to do this? Lewis answered, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. This insight was a breakthrough for Lewis. And it reveals that we must praise God or live in unreality and poverty. We cannot merely believe in our minds that he is loving or wise or great. We must praise him for those things and praise him to others if we are to move beyond abstract knowledge to heart-changing engagement. Learning to praise then changes us. Lewis couldn't help but notice the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. Pretty profound stuff. The health of praise. How to do it? We do it in community. Verses one, two, and three. He says, let us. Six times in three verses, he says, let us, us together, community. Verse seven, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. A sheep without a flock is a lost sheep. There is a dynamic of the good shepherd's love, care, and protection that can't be found on your own, all alone. That's what he's talking about here. There was uh, something, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and it was very common language. It's based on uh, Psalm 22.3. God inhabits the praises of what? Of his people. He lives, he dwells, he reveals himself to us when we praise him, when we open up our life to him. In community, there's a dynamic of his presence in community, in truth. How does the psalmist know what kind of God he is? He is quoting scripture in verses six through 11. 
The scripture that he's walking through is found in Numbers 14, 1 through 44. John 4, 23 through 24 says, the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I oftentimes hear people say this. Maybe you've heard people say, say the same thing. They say, well, I like to think of God like this. How many have ever heard people say that? So they're defining God. No, you don't define God. God defines himself. Only if your God can argue with you and make you struggle will you know that you worship the real God and not a cardboard cutout God or a figment of your imagination. I mean, when you have a relationship with a real person, they don't always agree with you, do they? No, they argue with you. Anybody married here? Yeah, marriage is a perfect example of that. My wife doesn't agree with most of what I say. <laughs> now that I think about it, <laughs> that's pretty hurtful. And I, I confused that in the early days. You know, I was like, I need your affirmation. Just say that you like me. I know you disagree with me, but just help me here a little bit. And I was trying to get from her what I should have been getting from God. You know, so it really created some major problems in my marriage relationship. But boy, she, there's just a ton of things that she just does not agree with me about. And, and now, after being married for 100 years, um, going on, it'll be 40 here in another year, but, but it's like, I, boy, that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. She's not a, a little Stepford wife. Yes, honey, yes, honey. Nor is God. He's not a Stepford God. He's gonna challenge you. It's in truth. And here's the next one. Spirit, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Purpose of worship is to come into his presence. Once again, John 4, 23 and 24, God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is not the, the omnipresence of God. We know that God is everywhere present, but this is the manifested presence of God that we're talking about. So in spite of the fact that God is everywhere, the spirit of God working through the word of God and the people of God will make his presence become real to your heart. So there's a manifestation of his presence. This is God's presence, power, and peace moving from being a concept in your head to a reality in your heart. You should not just be expecting this, but actually seeking this. So let me ask you this. When was the last time, when was the last time that you just didn't know that God loved you? You had an experience on your heart. There was a manifestation. God was at that moment more real to you than anything else, more real to you than your troubles or trials or anything. That's something that not only should you expect when you read your Bible, when you pray, when we come together, but you should seek that out. God, I want to have an experience of your presence in my life. And then here's the last one. This will tie us into our water baptism here this morning. In need of gospel rest, that's what he's talking about there. They didn't enter into the, the gospel rest. It's an Old Testament picture of the New Testament principle of the fullness of life that Christ gives us by grace through faith in Christ. And, uh, and here, let me just give you just a quick understanding of the gospel. The gospel is not good advice at what you must do to be right with God because it would be based on your works. But it's good news about what has been done for you and I through Jesus Christ through his indispensable and costly love. He lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. Let me read to you, just, it's just a quick story. It's, it's the short version of this story. It's found in the kid's book, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. I love reading this to my grandkids. 
And you've heard the story before, like I said, the long version of, a, of Ernest Gordon, World War II British soldier captured by Japanese to work the Death Railroad along the valley of the Kwai River in Thailand. The classic movie is based on, on this, Bridge Over the River Kwai. You familiar with the movie? Anybody? And uh, it's called The Missing Shovel. True story. In World War II, prisoners of war were building a railroad. After their day's work, the shovels were counted. The guard became enraged. One was missing. The prisoners were lined up and ordered to stand there until someone admitted they'd stolen the shovel. No one said it was them. The guard shouted. Still, no one budged. The guard threatened to kill all of them unless someone owned up. At last, one man stepped forward and said he had done it. The guard killed him on the spot. Later, at the guardhouse, the tools were recounted. No shovel was missing. The innocent man had sacrificed his life to save the others. 2,000 years ago, an innocent man stepped forward for us and sacrificed his life to save us. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. John 15, 13. Let's pray. So, Father God, nothing provides an indestructible identity, satisfies our souls, protects our hearts from being hijacked, and recalibrates our lives like giving ultimate worth and value to you, our unsearchably great and unimaginably good God. Thank you for the indispensable and costly love of your son dying in our place for our sins so that all who repent and believe in him have eternal life. Pour your spirit upon those this weekend who are making this public declaration of their faith in you. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. amen.